I really highly recommend disillusionment, you know, um, because when people say I've been disillusioned, like people say I was disillusioned by Barack Obama, a lot of people said that. My question to them is, well, that's okay. Would you rather be illusioned or disillusioned? Yeah, or deluded, yeah, <laughs> or disillusioned, yeah. Well, illusioned, you know, is mm -hmm. would you rather have illusions or would you not have illusions? Which, which is a more powerful state to be in? So, so to be disillusioned, to, to recognize the nature of the way things are, is actually, which is that this system renders most people powerless. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Gabor Mate is familiar to many folks. He has been on Tim Ferriss, Joe Rogan. He is a leader in the field of trauma, trauma relief, uh, as well as psychedelic therapies. Um, he actually took time out of bury, burying himself in his magnum opus that he is in the midst of writing to get to talk with me. And so it was a super grateful opportunity. And in, it, in that conversation, Gabor uh, beautifully unpacks the linkages between trauma and addiction, between trauma and ADD, even between trauma and current social crises. Uh, and he's been on the front lines. He's been working in some of the hottest neighborhoods in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, as well as doing deep work in different ceremonies, communities, um, and, and research. Uh, he talks about how critically he makes, he draws the connection between his own birth and early, early childhood in Hungary, right at the end of World War II, uh, being of Jewish descent, how stressed his mother was in both, you know, gestating him and then having him as a small child, the impact of that trauma, and then fleeing from the Nazis and then fleeing from the Soviets and that kind of world. And as intense as that is, you know, the fact that he survived and thrived through that uh, and that he found a way to not just his own healing, but also tools and models for others to heal is profoundly profoundly inspiring for all of us as we head into stormier waters. So if you've already come across uh, Gabor in varying talks and some of his writings, um, you know, feel free to jump in on this one as well. Uh, he's a beautiful soul and a wise teacher and, and a selfless practitioner. Well, welcome Gabor Mate. Uh, a clinician, a therapist, a pioneer in the field of trauma and addiction, the author of In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts and Scattered Minds, and a new book that is coming out in 2021. Uh, Gabor, thank you so much for joining us on Homegrown Humans. Jamie, it's nice to be here. Yeah. Now we, we began a little bit of a conversation just before coming on about really the sort of the state of things. And that's very much the theme of Homegrown Humans, which is just sort of where have we come from, um, who are we, and what do we do now? And obviously this year has, has been, and looks like it's gonna keep being uh, an intense one um, with all sorts of change and challenge around the world and in a lot of parts of the world that maybe aren't used to it, that, that haven't come up that way. And knowing your background in Hungary, uh, coming right out of, the aftermath of World War II, all of these kind of things. How, how are you seeing this moment? What are you feeling? And, and, and what, what is sort of top of your mind as far as where we go from here? Well, I sort of have a double-pronged answer to that question. Uh, first of all, when people talk to me about how bad the world is, I'm thinking back to my birth, which was in during the Second World War in 1944. And... As an infant, I could easily have been sent to Auschwitz and to the ovens. I mean, it was very close. And my grandparents were. And the tens of millions of people who died in that war on both sides, on all sides, and the terrible suffering and privations that people experience. And then I think of the terrible suffering that is endemic in the world and has been, the hunger, the poverty, the oppression, the multiple wars, the three million Vietnamese that were killed in that war, um, the 50,000 Americans who died, many of them coming back from PTSD. So when catastrophe strikes the world today and people say the world is just going to hell in a, in, in a basket, I'm thinking, well, 
Yes, but when has when has that not been true? Yeah, but we got here in a basket as well. <laughs> so, so, so the question is, who's experiencing it? You know, so that on the worldwide global level, <clears throat> there's many things about the current situation that have always been with us, just not being in our face here in North America, where we've been relatively spared. Mm-hmm. And so, when something like 9/11 happens that strikes us as a major disaster, which its own right it is. But compared to the number of people that have been, say, massacred in Guatemala in the 1990s, which is about 100,000, it was a relatively minor event. I'm talking about on the global scale. So what I'm saying is that to some extent, it depends on who's being, who's, whose ox is being gored and when. Having said that, uh there are some definite threats now that didn't used to exist before on a global level like climate change is affecting everybody it's not a localized disaster it's not a regional war or even a world war that involves certain countries but it affects and threatens everybody in the world so that's something new that's something ominous that's something hanging over our future that people either deny or are aware of it, but even the ones aware of it really don't know what to do about it, don't know how to confront it. And then of course, on top of that this year, we've had the COVID situation, which has created tremendous anxiety and isolation for a lot of people. And I have to say, I'm I'm affected by it as well. I notice a kind of heaviness, a strange heaviness about me sometimes that I'm just not used to experiencing in my adult life. <clears throat> Although it's probably resonates back to my infancy, but in my conscious awareness, I've not quite experienced it. So on the one hand, what I'm saying is that the challenges that we're facing are not new to humanity and things changing rapidly and life being unstable that's been a spiritual teaching going, going back to at least the Buddha 2,500 years ago. And on the other hand, we're seeing global threats that are new. So it's a mix of the old and the new, and it's a heavy brew. And then on top yeah. of that, you say you take something like the death of George Floyd. Well, there's nothing new about black American males being lynched by the police. That's been going on for decades. Mm-hmm. But it's not been shown on YouTube before. It hasn't gone viral before. So for a lot of people, it's a wake up call, something that we might have been woken to a long time ago, but we weren't. Nevertheless, for those who had not been aware of such dynamics, it comes as a shock. And that comes on top of the COVID shock. And then particularly in the States, <clears throat> it comes on top of some very tense and divisive and um, aggressive political dynamics. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult time. Well, well you, you bring up something interesting because you were basically sort of saying, hey, relatively, you know, you, what is our relative amount of suffering now? And our reaction to it compared to World War II, compared to Guatemala, compared to these other situations. And that this and these sorts of things, the fact that life has been nasty, brutish, and short more often than not, um, compared to our expectations and compared to what's put front and center in front of us, um, that, that would feel like we just kind of need to toughen up more, you know, because nobody ever promised us a rose garden. Um, And on the other hand, you're pointing out new and different levels of intensity. I mean, a global quarantine, existential risk to the whole planet. These are new and those are potentially without precedent. And I know that, you know, you've done so much work in the realm of both trauma and addiction. And I'm, I'm curious as to how you see our current state of both, because uh, a friend of ours, Tristan Harris, has just released a film called The Social Dilemma, which is going quite large on Netflix and and everywhere else where it's been produced. And it's basically about 
big tech and the optimization algorithms of addiction and it's smartphone addiction and social media, which compared to your work in the inner cities of Vancouver with, you know, um, you know, deeply and profoundly addicted people to, you know, physically addictive compounds, this must feel relatively like a lighter form. And the same with, you know, you know, I don't see it that way, Jamie. I don't, I don't compare degrees of suffering. And just to clarify, in my comments about the world's changeability and the horrible suffering that has always existed, I certainly wasn't implying that people should toughen up. I, I, I'm not. That's not a very. That would not be, from my point of view, a compassionate thing to say. I just meant to put it into perspective. I just meant to say that. Um, it's, it, it's a question of being aware, how aware we are. Because if we've not been aware of what's going on, we'll be more shocked by what's going on now. So, but I'm not saying we should toughen up. I mean, I don't think that's, that would not be my, my advice to people. Um, no, no, that, 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 was in, that was in quotes. That was not at, so intended to be a no, paraphrase I know. I mean, I just of you. Want to clarify yeah. that that's, you know, yeah. not how I would language it. Um, now, in terms of um, what you said about the addictions, again, I, I don't, I think it's more important just to look at dynamics rather than to compare. So what you said and what your friend has just written about is absolutely accurate. In my own new book, I talk about it. So in a nutshell, the, the drug addicted population that I worked with, people that are living in the streets or in Stand, you know, single room occupancy hotels in Vancouver's downtown east side with their addiction to cocaine or crystal meth or the opiates like fentanyl or heroin or morphine, um, <clears throat> their alcoholism, their cigarette addictions and so on. The circuits in the brain that are being activated and engaged in those addictions are also the same circuits in the brain that the cell phone companies and the food companies deliberately go out to agitate in people's minds. So they actually have neuroscientists figuring out how to get people addicted to food. The food that we that's eat. That, that salt, sugar, fat. That's the whole oh, salt, yeah. sugar, fat uh, hypothesis. Yeah. Not hypothesis, but, 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 but revelation. But, mm -hmm. it, you know, it, they actually study now the, the impact of the food addiction and the neuroscience, the nefarious neuroscience that goes into fostering food addictions mm -hmm. from a health point of view is far greater than the impact of drug addictions. They even and called they it the bliss part. point. They actually had a, they had a term for it. They, yeah, they, the that was the... <laughs> yeah, with what level are you are you releasing the top level of dopamine and endorphins in the brain, which are the addictive chemicals in the brain that, that the stimulant drugs and the opiate drugs also target. And so these food companies or the cell phone companies, they go to work and say, well, how do we get the brain in this most addictive state? Now, if you look at the health impact of that, just take the food, for example, who's more culpable? an executive who then sells junk foods to millions knowing the impact and therefore fosters um, an epidemic of diabetes and obesity around the world, which is what we're seeing right now. And by the way, diabetes and obesity are major risk factors for COVID, of course. Yeah. So these people are, from a certain point of view, are they don't mean to. They're not trying to kill us. They're just trying to sell us products, but they do kill us. They just don't care if we die. And so they consider great corporate executives to get huge payouts, as opposed to somebody in the downtown east side who sells an ounce of cocaine and lands in jail. And they're doing the same thing. Yeah. So this yeah. is the nature of our culture. And now, and they both feed on trauma. So I think we live in a highly traumatized culture. It's when people are traumatized that they need to soothe themselves through junk food. And they're traumatized by isolation, by economic stresses, by childhood experiences. 
by the increasing separation of life in this society. <clears throat> These are all discombobulate people's brain physiology and then want to soothe themselves through all kinds of addictive behaviors. And with the downtown east side patients that I had, and not just my own addicted patients, but if you look at the literature, the, the more childhood trauma you experience, the more your brain then is programmed to turn to addictions uh, for all kinds of reasons. Some of which has to do with the impact of trauma on brain development itself. And some of it is just the fact that the more trauma you experience, the more pain you'll have, and the more pain you'll have, the more escape from pain you'll experience or, or, or desire. And all addictions, whether to food, whether to sex, whether to gambling, whether to work, whether to political power, whether to drugs, whether to shopping, did I say eating, all have to do with self-soothing. And when do people have to soothe themselves? When there's some kind of pain. And what is the source of that pain? Some degree of level, some degree of uh, past trauma and present stress. So during the COVID crisis, for example, we're seeing a real uptick in drug overdoses here in Vancouver. You've drug actually been seeing that, sorry, clinically. You've been seeing that clinically, like that is actually that's actually oh yeah oh yeah no the the numbers uh, we're setting records for overdoses now, oh. historical records, and like in one month in July here in Vancouver we had 170 people die of overdoses. Up to that period, in all of the six months of COVID, we've had 204 deaths. So in one month, we had nearly as many deaths from overdoses as we've had from COVID in six months. Wow. And we're seeing this internationally, increasing overdoses, increasing alcoholism, increasing um, domestic violence um, under the COVID stress. Yeah. But really, it's a combination of uh, past trauma acting on, or I should say, current stress acting on past trauma and that's a combination that drives people into dysfunctional behaviors yeah. where they either act out their traumas on other people or they try and soothe it internally through substance use or some other addictive pattern also well, talk to me about this because in my understanding of, of your your work on both trauma and add you're you, you've taken a sort of environmental sort of constructivist stance in the sense that it is people's lived experience, it's their exposure to their environment, it's how we go and sort of neuroplastically, epigenetically, psychosocially develop and, and encode our experiences that set the conditions for these things. And the good news is that if that's how we got there, we can also lead our way out of it. Right. Um, and then that kind of, you know, when we're describing the hacks or modifications to our diet versus big ag marketing campaigns for salt, sugar, and fat, or we talk about social media and tech algorithms doing the same or online shopping. We, there's some, you know, at first there's a desire like, oh, we need to get back to some better, more natural, more balanced state where people had connection, belonging, touch, all of the things that appear to be absent that are prompting us to self-soothe Right. right with these less less constructive addictive behaviors and so i have a question that sort of gets us to you know the sort of you know rousseauian ideas of tabula rasa's were their ideal states maria montessori you know famously laid out the ideas of what does a child in their natural state want to learn and express versus what's put in front of them these days and so if things like Salt, sugar, and fat, the reason we lose our minds for them is because you had, salt was a rare essential mineral. <laughs> Sweet was only true for honeycombs and you know, two weeks of fruit, fruit flourishing. You know, and fat was the highest quality storage of calories you could possibly get your hands on. So now if you have them all at once in one place, you'll lose your mind. And the same with pornography. You know, sexually available abundant mates were incredibly rare, especially uncontested, you know, by other alphas and suddenly young boys have access to that. You know, so how do we strike the balance? Is there a more natural state for us to get back to these days or not? And well, first, of all, first of all, I'm not, I don't much favor these evolution-based um, 
uh, explanations. Um, hmm. They don't explain why the big change in the last 30, 40 years. In, in what way? Well, we've Which always, big change? You know, people have always wanted sugar, salt, and fats, but there wasn't mm -hmm. the level of addiction that we have right now. You know, um, there wasn't the level of mental illness that we have right now. All these kids being diagnosed with ADD. But where did that come from? Why are more people developing autoimmune disease? Why are women having 80% of all autoimmune disease as opposed to men? Did you say eight zero, 80? Eight, eight zero, yeah. Um, so these explanations, these evolution-based explanations, they may touch upon some aspects of it, but they don't explain the full picture. So the, the, the fully explained it, I believe, you have to really put people, as you said in the beginning of this question, in the context of their experience. And so I don't think that human beings are tabula rasa. They can just sort of um, paint or, 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 or carve any message onto. I think you have to begin with what human needs are. So what are the essential needs of a human infant? Now, our needs are not arbitrary. They're natural-based. When I say natural-based, that's how we evolved. Our nervous system is wired to have expectation for certain needs being met. And when those needs are not met, development doesn't happen optimally. In fact, it's distorted. Now, if you look at human evolution, our, our species has been on the earth for, I've seen various figures, 130,000 to 200,000 years, Homo sapiens. Before then, there were other hominins you know, homo creatures that were not sapiens. So that's been hundreds of thousands of years. And if you look at hominids, which are human-like, but you know, like ape-like, I think it's been millions of years. So we're talking about millions of years of evolution that, that builds in certain needs that human beings have. That, that, and you know, every animal, every plant, every organism has these evolutionary needs. And if the environment meets those needs, they'll develop optimal. And if the environment does not provide them, development will be uh, distorted. Now, if you look at just our own species, never mind even our ancestors, for most of those 130,000 or 200,000 or 100,000 years that Homo sapiens have been in the earth, how did we live? Well, until of a blink of an eyelash ago, we lived in hunter-gatherer small groups out there in nature. So lived in community, in touch with nature. We weren't isolated, individual, aggressive, competitive individuals. We could not possibly have survived that way. And the needs of the, inf the human infant, like the needs of any mammalian infant, is to be held, to be nurtured, to be responded to, to be seen, to be received, to be protected, to be loved. Not just by an isolated mother or father struggling in an apartment or a bungalow, cut off from extended family, cut off from community, but actually in a communal group. So we're wired for connection. We're wired for interaction. We're wired for being understood, for being seen were being held. And that was the human being in the state of nature until this long ago in terms of evolution. So then civilization happens, first with agriculture about 12,000 years ago, and then with various levels of um, urbanification and, and then social divisions and class divisions and the subjugation of the matriarchy to the patriarchy and then the rise of some more sophisticated civilization and you go through slavery and feudalism and then you come to capitalism and under each of these civilized systems the actual needs of the human child are being met less and less and less and less until we come to today where they're met the least and so if we're looking at the problems in human development is to the environment that we have to look at. So 
take something like ADD, which is what I've been diagnosed. Well, you can say it's a genetic disease, which it isn't. I'm not, I'm not going to go into the argument, but the genetic argument is laughably scientifically thin based on twin studies that don't stand up to scrutiny if you think about them for a moment. Are you talking about sort of like Ned Hollowell's original thesis and some of that? Yeah, most, most experts on ADHD regard it as a genetic, it's a heritable disease. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could, I could go into the argument about it. If you like, I will. No, it's, no, it's okay. But I'll skip it. Uh, I'm more interested in the three line. Yeah. Well, let me just start with something. What is the hallmark of ADD? The tuning out, absent-mindedness. Now, what is tuning out? Is it a disease, genetic or otherwise? No, it's a response to the environment. We tune out. We actually dissociate to some degree when the situation is too stressful for us to deal with. Or, or not salient, right? Wouldn't that be an or not salient, like not interesting or relevant to my... Well, I'm talking about infants. I'm talking about infants. Mm. Okay. okay. Um, if something is not alien, if, if something is not interesting, you might not tune out. You just might turn your attention to something else. Mm -hmm. But tuning out in the sense of dissociation is a defensive response. Mm. Yeah. So when does that happen? That happens when we're in the situation of stressed and we can't escape it or change it. So if you take my infancy in Hungary under the Nazis and my mother's emotional states and terrors and fears in that terrible year that we went through, never knowing what might happen when, of course I would tune out a lot as an infant. It's the only way I could survive. But this is when my brain is developing. So then the tuning out becomes wired in. Now they say, you've got this genetic disease. No, I don't. I've got this defense mechanism, this adaptation that became ingrained. And once it's ingrained, it's really hard to dislodge it. So it looks like a disease, but it isn't. And if, if you're looking at what's happening with kids across North America now, why are millions being medicated now for ADHD? And by the way, it tends to be the poorer kids the more traumatized kids who get diagnosed and, 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 and medicated. It's because there's so much stress in the parenting environment. It's not, because, it's not because parents are not loving their kids or because they're less dedicated or less um, devoted to their kids. It's because the parents themselves are so stressed. I mean, the parents are stressed, the kids are stressed. And one way they deal with it is to tune out. So rather than looking at the problem from the point of view of individual neurobiology. Let's look at it systemically. And what is happening to a lot of families and a lot of kids in this culture of increasing separation and heightened stress and increasing insecurity. That's a real question. And that, means that, when, that means when we deal with these kids, rather than just trying to change their brain biology by giving them a pill, how about working to change their environment? How about working to teach teachers how to recognize the signs of trauma and help them accommodate so that rather than punishing the child or controlling the child, how about healing the child through warm, loving, nurturing relationships? But unfortunately, this is not a perspective that's taught in medical schools or in educational faculties or legal faculties and certainly not to politicians. Well, so, so again, I mean, you're... you're you're making such a compelling case that so much of this is culturally constructed environmental exposure and experience. And then, you know, you, you were, you were hinting at a couple of, you know, asymmetrically high impact levers and whether that's food companies, whether that's the medical establishment, the educational systems, those kind of things, what happens? And you said, they're not trying to kill us. They just don't care if we die. Yeah. Right. That's, a, that's, that's a title out of a chapter out of my new book, by the way. Is it really? Yeah. Like, it's it's exactly they're, that. they're not trying to kill it. They just don't care if you die. Yeah. Well, I mean, I remembered it because it was, it's a zinger, right? And, and so there's that question of like, okay, so we're not in on a blank slate. We're not in a state of nature. And in fact, our environmental conditions are being asymmetrically shaped for goals and outcomes and agendas that are not the same as all of the beautiful humanistic ones you're laying out. Yeah. 
So what, what do we do now? Like, what is our, I mean, is this the protest in the streets? Is this socialist movement to take down the capitalist system? Is this peaceful nonviolence? Is this starting independent communities that just, you know, the Buckminster Fuller, the best way to, you know, <laughs> to, to change the system is to go build a different, better one? What, what is your sense? And you're obviously deep in this work, writing this book right now. And, and I doubt that you would have taken the trouble to diagnose the problem so thoroughly if you didn't at least have some hope for solutions. Well, this is why I hesitate because um, <clears throat> the problem is systemic. I mean, if you have a system that's constantly and um, with almost self-glorified glee is based on greed, on everybody getting for themselves whatever they can at the expense of everybody else. I mean, during this, I just read an article yesterday. Um, let me even find it if, if you give me a moment. Um, yeah, in this um, in this COVID crisis, um, in the United States during COVID. The wealth of billionaires has surged by nearly a trillion dollars since the beginning of the pandemic. Can you get that? The wealth of billionaires has surged by nearly uh, a trillion dollars. Jeff Bezos of Amazon was a dirt poor, like a church mouse little man back in March with only $113 billion. Now he's got 200 billion. This is doing COVID when millions are being thrown out of work. And there's yeah, Naomi Klein's term of disaster capitalism. It's, it's, yeah, it's like Naomi, it's totally the Naomi's disaster capitalism. Well, when that's the gold standard, and these are our heroes, and uh, this is the way, then, then what are you going to do about it? You know, now I don't have the political answers. I know what I would like to see. But you can't prescribe political change to somebody else. Political changes happen when they're ready to happen. So I, you know, I personally believe, I personally don't believe that inside this system, there are systemic solutions. I think this system is designed to work precisely the way it does. When people say that this system is failing, it isn't. It's, <laughs> it's, it's succeeding in doing exactly what it's designed to do which is to enrich the rich and to impoverish the poor and to empower the powerful and to disempower the weak and the, and the vulnerable. It's working beautifully. Now, yeah. uh, so people are gonna have to come to terms for themselves what they wanna do about it on a political level. But the politics as we run it these days, as you know, are designed to keep these going the way they are. I mean, if you take, everybody recognizes <clears throat> Well, most people recognize that Trump is a servant of the billionaire class with his tax cuts and so on. But the same transfer of upward transfer of health, wealth happened under Clinton, happened under Bush, happened up to under Obama. So th this is not, politicians may vary to the degree but not in the quality of, of which system they serve. And when an Obama with all his progressive rhetoric and, and terrific charm and intelligence and grace and articulateness and probably good intentions. But nevertheless, when he gets $400,000 to speak, to give a keynote to Wall Street executives, they know what they're paying for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I'm yeah. saying that inside the system, I don't know what to say. So then the question is, what do we do? Well, I do think people do have to engage in political activity to the extent that it motivates and makes sense to them. So whether that means politics, whether that means community organizing, whether that means street protests, whether that means um, trying to foster locally alternative type communities, uh, it's whatever people, but, but anything that gets you going and motivated and active is gonna be beneficial for your health. Because it's that, it's that disempowerment and that helplessness, that, actually, that passivity that this system uh, fosters that 
that really frustrates people and leaves them so stressed. Now, then, then when you engage in those activities, just keep an open mind, keep an open eye. Okay, is this working? Is it not working? And if it's not, what else needs to happen? That's well, because because that, that, that's, a, that's an important critique, right? I mean, there's that sense of, you know, change comes from within and we need to do what's right for us, take, take steps that are true for us, those, those kinds of things. And, the, and there's real empowerment in that. And then, you know, you'll hear people make systemic structural critiques and say, that's really naive, right? <laughs> because you are in fact powerless and waking up to that fact is actually the critical thing to class consciousness or whatever the next step in their story is that they're, they're, they're suggesting. So how do we strike that balance between the personal is political, but also the transpersonal is political? Like how, how do we, you know, between individual life growth healing and then understanding that the levers of power, because there's, um, there's a few things that came up as you were describing the, the status of capitalism. One is Harold Bloom's book called The Genius of the Beast. And he basically describes capitalism like algal blooms, like galaxies and supernovas and black holes. He just says, look, boom bust is actually one of the most effective ways for propagating novelty in nature. So when we look at the capitalist system and we see booms and busts and we say, oh, that's signs of moral rot, it's actually, it might not be. I mean, it could also be, but it might not be. It might simply be that this system has its own internal intelligence and this is how we ended up with cell phones and rockets to Mars, you know, and the collapses, the collateral damage, the creative destruction is a feature, not a bug of that specific system. And you, know, you can't deny it, we got a ton more novelty in the last 500 years than we had for the last 100,000. And then you add in like the brain scans on power and how power can actually warp people's, people's relatedness and, and the studies that show that the more people earn, the less inclined they are to be generous. Absolutely. And it, Right. And it feels like we've got some structural things. So in the realm of, in the age of philanthropic capitalism, where we're sort of hoping that all the winners are going to turn around to make the world a better place. It doesn't seem structurally like that's necessarily true. And when you're talking about, well, Hey, this system is designed to do what it does and, you know, fill in the blanks and is taking us off a cliff. Um, what's your, like, we don't have the time to sort of just be patient and wait for the new forest to grow up we kind of have one crack at this, it feels like. So what's, what's your sense of how do we strike the balance between a system that may at its fundamental levels not be designed for pro-social humanitarian outcomes that we care about, and we may not have the luxury of sort of sitting on our hands waiting for an organic regime change, and, and I use that in the ecological sense, not in the political sense, <laughs> you know, um, to take place. Well, that's a tough one, you know. Um, I think something that you said that struck me that you have to realize that you're actually powerless. Well, that also happens to be the first step in the 12 step groups is that you recognize that you're powerless over your addiction. Mm -hmm. So um, I really highly recommend disillusionment, you know. Um, <laughs> Because when people say I've been disillusioned, like people say I was disillusioned by Barack Obama, a lot of people said that. My question to them is, well, that's okay. Would you rather be illusioned or disillusioned? Yeah, or deluded, yeah, <laughs> or disillusioned, yeah. Well, illusioned, you know, is mm -hmm. would you rather have illusions or would you not have illusions? Which, which is a more powerful state to be in? So, so to be disillusioned, to, to recognize the nature of the way things are is actually which is that this system renders most people powerless. And there's lots of studies that show that the opinions of the average person makes slight bit of difference to policy, but as the opinions of the rich has all the impact on, on political policy. I mean, these, this is, these studies have been done. We might as well wake up to that fact. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, what are you supposed to do? Run it in the streets with guns and start shooting people? You know, like clearly not. So I think to some extent we do have to have a long-term view of it. So the question is not. I mean, you say we don't have the patience. Patience for what? So when you take somebody like the Buddha or Jesus, 
who each clearly had visions of a very humane, human and divine reality based on empathy and love. Just how successful were they in getting their, their regimes established on earth, you know? Well, so well that, which is your assessment? Are you saying they were amazingly successful or not that successful? Well, if you look at it in terms of results, 2,000 years or 2,500 years later, how successful were they? You know, I'm saying they were not. Not if you look at it in temporal terms. You know, so, and, and you know, in the States particularly, but it's hardly a new phenomenon that some of the most rapidly violent and aggressive and hateful people do so in the name of the loving Jesus. Yeah. Well, well let's, let's talk about that because you, you, you know, clearly, okay. Let me just complete the thought though. So what I'm saying is, but were they really failures? No, they were not. Because they spoke a vision. They experienced and spoke a vision that goes right to the heart of humanity. And their teaching and their examples are still with us and still inspire many. So what I'm saying is that in terms of and there was a Jewish rabbi about a hundred years before Jesus who said that the task is not yours to finish. But Hillel. Are you yeah. free? Was it Hillel? I think it was Hillel who said that. Um, who said the task is not yours to finish, but neither are you free not to take part in it. So the question is not, not patience, but with the question is with the time that I have, what can I do and how do I want to engage? And each person needs to answer that for themselves. And that's on the social level. Then of course, on the individual level, um, I certainly find that the more I integrate myself, the more I deal with my trauma, the more conscious I am, the more effective my speaking is and my actions are, and the less conscious I am, the less effective I am. So mm -hmm. that I think it's a double pronged. Again, you have to yes, okay, how do I want to relate to what's happening on the outside, but continually, how do I relate to what's happening on the inside. And that's a very much an individual question for everybody. So I don't know what advice to give other than that. Well, well, let's try and stitch this together because, you know, you just referenced the sort of avatars of human compassion, whether that's yeah. Buddha, Jesus, Lao Tzu, etc., and the, the ripple effect that yeah. their example can hold. Yeah. And, you know, we saw Gandhi, Mandela, Martin Luther King, Take yeah. that, take those lessons up very explicitly. Uh, Gandhi even called it Satyagraha. Yeah. Howard Thurman and Dr. King ended up calling it soul force. There was that sense of true Christ-like compassion, right? The ability to give beyond my own personal needs. And at the same time, which I'm seeing two trends right now, which, and I, and I completely agree that like, that's our X factor. Like that's the transformative capacity right now in the face of lots of darkness. I mean, it always has been, you know, like all of our stories are like small bands of rebel misfits, you know, at the last minute against all odds, you know, to deliver goodness, truth and beauty back to the world. But we have two things that are going on right now, which we've been speaking of, which is the accumulation of grief and trauma mm -hmm. and decentralized anti-hierarchical movements and whether that's Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, any of these protest movements, which for lots of understandable reasons are saying we don't wanna follow a leader. We want this to be community-based. But on the other hand, that bodhisattvic impulse, like we, the reason we know Gandhi's name and we know MLK's name is because they did something extraordinary in the face of hate. They transformed it. And as we are leveling our organizations and our movements right now. Um, and many of us are suffering increasingly intensified trauma, which is prompting us to act out and lash out. How do we coalesce around some of those higher frequencies of human potential and transformative compassion? Well, I could speak about it or illustrate it. And let me just see, let's try the second one first. 
So for yourself, do you notice that kind of um, impulse to, to lash out and to be aggressive? Or are you speaking more in general? I'm speaking in general and just okay. following the, the news cycles and seeing particularly further left turning their guns on center left populations, whether that's in academia or within any of these movements yeah. and just well, feeling I, saddened by it. Yeah, I understand. So here's what I can tell you. Um, if you look at brain scan studies, the more conservative people are, there's a structure in the temporal lobe of the brain on each side called the amygdala. And the amygdala is, is like an almond uh, shaped structure. It's the brain's fear center. Now, the bigger the, the amygdala, the more likely it is to somebody to have conservative, authoritarian, oppressive views on politically. So a lot of what goes down for right-wing politics is actually fear-based. Where does that fear come from? Knowing that the brain develops an interaction with the environment, as I said earlier, those people were intimidated and hurt in childhood. And so the political views, although they may think it have to do with rational principles and logic, actually have to do with childhood fear. And that's why they want an authority and father to take care of them. Now, trauma also shows up on the left. And I've seen that, I've experienced it in myself, that when I felt rage for other people who didn't agree with me, if I checked in with that rage, once I looked at it, and for a long time I didn't, but once I did, it had to do with rages that I've had since infancy. At not being seen, at not being respected, at not being held, not being nurtured, and so on. So all I can say is in response to your question, <clears throat> is that when you when anybody notices that kind of rage in themselves they, and they think it's about the present situation and about the political situation, no, it isn't. Your opinion might be, mm -hmm. but the emotional charge that you infuse those opinions with have to do with your personal psychology. Because Gandhi didn't dislike injustice any less than you did but he wasn't rageful about it. And you might say the same thing of a Mandela. And you might say the same thing of a Martin Luther King. They weren't less principled. They weren't less politically, analytically astute, but they weren't coming from a position of rage, which means that if they had rage and anger, they dealt with them, but they didn't project it outwards onto other people. Yeah. So absolutely. whenever we do that, we do. It's about our own stuff. But then, then, then we go back to well. But none of those guys had cakewalk lives. It's not that they were absent the kinds of traumas that can hijack <clears throat> and block others. So that kind of leads me into a, in, into another curiosity I have with your experience with ayahuasca and psychedelic therapies and. What, like, obviously, I would imagine that compared to methadone and compared to lots of other more conventional interventions in the addiction space, that something cathartic like iboga, ayahuasca, something that allows people to go deeply into their traumas and potentially release them um, is potentially, you know, powerfully helpful. And on the other hand, we end up with all of these asymptotes of improvement <laughs> you know where one to three sessions of these kinds of compounds can provide really profound breakthroughs 33 not so much um there's you know the entire baby boomer generation and the first round of psychedelics didn't create a lot of bodhisattvas it created a handful <laughs> you know but an awful lot of people just kind of lost the plot along the way so What's your sense of that? What's your sense of the healing and integration power of peak experiences and their relationship to true integration of trauma? And where are the limits? What should, how, how can we set appropriate expectations for that? 
Well, to go back to Gandhi, Ma, Mandela, and, and Martin Luther King, um, I'm sure that what they did all have is some kind of uh, rigorous practice. You know, um, so they weren't looking to psychedelics, they were just looking to Gandhi was very aware of his own failings or foibles as a human being. But he did have a practice. Specifically sitting meditation in his yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Martin Luther King was a very spiritual person. I mean he had his foibles as well, you know, but his personal life was far from exemplary. But he nevertheless did have a strong spiritual commitment. Now, to go from that to psychedelics, so uh, psychedelics are not drugs in the sense of, drugs in the Western sense are designed to change your brain state chronically. So if you're, if you've taken Prozac for addiction, sorry, for depression, as I have, it was really designed to keep my brain in a certain state at certain serotonin levels so I wouldn't be irritable or reactive and depressed. Psychedelics aren't drugs in that sense. They're not taken to change the biology of the brain. They're there to um, accept very momentarily so that in that altered state you have access to parts of your unconscious that otherwise you'd be repressed. So whether with ayahuasca or boga or psilocybin or MDMA, whether the natural plant substances or whether the man-designed substances, there's an alteration of brain chemistry that can also happen, for example, with deep breath work. So you don't have to take a substance. If anybody knows uh, Stan Grau's holotropic breath work, you breathe deeply and rapidly and that'll change the chemistry of your blood long enough that your brain gets into a different state and parts of your unconscious hitherto repressed are allowed to open up. So that's what the psychedelics are about. They don't do it on their own spontaneously, what they do for some people, but for most people, there has to be guidance, there has to be the right setting for it, there has to be the right intention. So it's quite a one thing for people to drop acid to have a good time at a party it's quite another for them to have an LSD experience under a guide to really explore what's happening inside them and to have a transformative experience. And it's the same with any of these substances. So intention and the setting and the guidance makes all the difference in the world. And when in the right setting, when the intentions are fulfilled, you get to know parts of yourself that you didn't even know existed. And you do that in two senses. One is that you might get to see some pure, loving, open-hearted part of you that have been really closed because of early trauma. I've had that experience. Or on the other hand, you might really get in touch with early sorrow and agony and primitive uh, angst that you didn't know you experienced and rage and fear. But if that's held in the right context, then you can go through it and let go, as opposed to continuing to repressing it, to be repressing it. Having said all that, for all the psychedelic work I've done over the years and, and, and I've facilitated over the years, I certainly cannot say that I've learned a lot from them and I know they've had an impact. I cannot hold myself up as look at me, I'm a transformed person because of psychedelics or because of anything else because I know how much my patterns still keep showing up and how much I have to deal with them on a regular basis so there are no panacea I've known people whose lives have been profoundly changed by psychedelics whose light directions is altered on a dime and they run 180 different direction to their joy and satisfaction and happiness I congratulate such people but I don't think there's any recipes it's just another modality to explore in the right environment. Yeah. So I'm not an evangelist for psychedelics. I also see their potential and I've seen it in practice. Yeah. Yeah. So, so final question, given, given your assessment of the state of things, the state of the world, 
the need for people to take responsibility for their own healing and integration and then also take responsibility for their part in a bigger conversation. Um, if you were to, and, and I don't know whether you're doing this in your current book or not, but, uh, but if you were to lay out what is your sense of an integrated model of trauma relief, so you can pull any tool you would like off the shelf and you could put it together, what would be the, what would be a core set of practices or experiences that you would think would be most helpful for the most people in managing micro and macro PTSD? Well, and beyond PTSD, there's a lot of people who are traumatized who don't qualify for the specific diagnosis of PTSD. PTSD is only a specific constellation of symptoms. Okay. But on the trauma spectrum, it's only a small swath of the general trauma spectrum. And, and then most of us in the society on somewhere on that trauma spectrum, even though we don't have PTSD. Yeah. Um, it's impossible for me to have a general response to that. I, there are so many good treatments out there. So the first thing is what you pointed to earlier about just waking up to the fact that it's not right and that something else is possible. I mean, that's the f there's two things that are necessary. First of all, some dissatisfaction with your experience of life, of yourself and of the world. And uh, the Greek playwright once said in one of his plays that human beings, the, the way the gods created us, we have to suffer into the truth. So there's to be some degree of suffering. Usually some people have the fortunate experience, but they're very rare of being woken up just because of grace. Most of us, and if I'm any example, we have to suffer repeatedly. And then that's the first thing, but suffering is not enough because suffering may also lead you to get totally despondent and helpless and, 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 and disheartened. So you also have to believe in the possibility that, some, that you deserve something different and something else is at least possible. So those are the two beginnings, the, the recognition of suffering. And of course, what the Buddha says that there's a way out of suffering. It doesn't have to be this way. Having said that then, specifically, well, it depends on what your resources are and what you're up for, but there's ways of working with the body, somatosensory experiencing and somatic experiencing and uh, working with the mind, uh, EMDR, um, various types of counseling, um, the, 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 the modalities of mindfulness work and it's all its various shapes and forms some of it more spiritually inclined, some of it just more um, for its own sake of just being mindful, regardless of any spiritual aspirations. Um, certainly from a spiritual angle, some recognition that the world is bigger than our little egos, that we belong to something much greater, and that we're a natural part of something much greater, whether we recognize it or not. It's some opening to strive for. My own method is called compassionate inquiry, uh, which really means to be curious about everything that happens to you and to be curious about it in a compassionate way. So, for example, the next time you say to yourself, why did I do this? That's not compassionate. There's no question there. It's a self-judgment. But what if you said, hmm, I wonder why you did this? Given that I'm a good person, well-intentioned, intelligent, and I keep doing this over and over again, hmm, what is that all about? How is that serving me? Where, where, where did it originate from? That's called compassion inquiry. Uh, there's Dick Schwartz and his internal family systems where we work with different parts of ourselves, the hateful parts and the lovable parts and the addicted parts, and we accept them all, and we're inquiring into them all. I, I love that because that just resolves so much of the normal yeah. tension to fix things or solve things or repress or transcend. You're just like, hey, you all play a part, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and both his method and my compassion inquiry is designed exactly to, to do that, just to be curious about it, to look at it compassionately. Yeah. And then, of course, as you do either of those, then the person who is looking, 
and wants to understand, you start to learn. That's the real you. Make, make an offering to our hungry ghosts, yeah? feed them. Yeah. So lots of methods, but overall it's the recognition of suffering, the recognition that I deserve not to suffer and other people deserve not to suffer. That's compassion. And that, yeah, there are ways out of the suffering. And final thing, what, what looking into the world ahead gives you hope? Well, I always quote Noam Chomsky on that one. He was once asked if he was an optimist or a pessimist, and he said, uh, strategically, I'm an optimist, and tactically, I'm a pessimist. And um, what I take that to mean is, in the long term, if I didn't believe in the ultimate goodness and, and potential wisdom of human beings, the potential in human beings to wake up, I wouldn't be doing the work that I'm doing, nor, nor do I think anybody I know would be doing the work they're doing. So that's my optimism, is, is about human beings. Tactically, in the short term, I think things are going to get worse for a lot of people. I think that's the nature of the system. It's going to extract a lot more suffering from people. Uh, that's how it's designed. And I don't believe present political arrangements are adequate to reverse that trend on the whole. On the contrary, I think they're designed to, to keep it going in the same direction. So um, all the more reason for people to wake up. But, but then look at all the waking up that has happened. Like 10 years ago, and certainly after 9-11, which is almost 20 years ago now, if you question the system, and if you mention the word capitalism, you'd be seen as a raving lunatic. But right now, people are talking about the nature of the system very openly in the pages of the New York Times. Yeah, the Financial Times. You're like, holy shit, people are talking about the collapse of neoliberalism. Yeah. yeah so people are actually looking at these things now. So my book, which comes out in a year, if I can be shamelessly hucksterist here for a moment. Please do. We want to hear about it. The title is The Myth of Normal, Illness and Health in an Insane Culture. And that's what I think we're looking at. And I don't think the system on its own is going to recover from its insanity with a lot, without a lot of imp impetus and, and, and activism and, and engagement on the part of a lot of people. So, so please say, say that again. Say, say that title again. The Myth of Normal, Illness and Health in an Insane Culture. That's beautiful. And, and is, it, is it available for pre-order yet on Amazon and book sites? Oh, my God. Listen, one of my anxieties have been I've got four more weeks to finish this long overdue manuscript. And I've written much more than necessary because so I'll have to cut it down. Sometimes I feel a deep anxiety in my heart. I'm genuinely sharing this, that I have too much to say and not enough to say. And so um, I got to get this done and uh, nothing is available yet, but it has been taken up by big publishers in the States, Canada and the UK. So if I succeed in finishing it and then whittling it down to size, it should be out in about a year or so. And perhaps then I could talk about it again. And if that's of interest to you. We absolutely will. I mean, I'm literally, I'm, I told you I'm right there with you and I submit in a, in a week and yeah. the title of the book is recapture the rapture rethinking God, sex, and death for a world that's lost its mind. So we're right on the same page. And I ended up with 120,000 words <laughs> because as, the, as the, this year happened, basically the first third of my book, which was just setting up, hey, we might want to conceive of the inconceivable. It all happened, <laughs> you know? So it was like, boom, never mind. I don't need to make that argument anymore. And then found myself with this out of hand giant manuscript, which we've been taking a chainsaw well, to. This month, I have doubled the number of words that you've got, and I'm still not finished yet, but I'll have to cut it down. But, it, but I've had the same experience that everything I was writing about all of a sudden gets confirmed by COVID. Yeah. Everything. Yeah, and you're like, I don't need to relitigate this. In fact, everyone's going to be tired of these points, you know, by the time they get to my, by the time my book comes out. Yeah. It's fascinating. Well, well Gabor, thank you. And, and I mean, thank you for taking the time today. Thank you for your entire life and body of work and testimony to courage and compassion. And we absolutely, um, you know, count you as a, as a emeritus member of homegrown humans. Uh, you're, you're, you're on the team of humanity finding its way forward. So 
thank you again for spending time with us and good luck on on your manuscript thank you it's a great pleasure to chat with you thanks a lot this episode of collective insights was hosted by jamie wheel and produced by jacqueline loera this podcast is for informational purposes only The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.